Thank you, gentlemen. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus. If you're our guest this morning and don't have a Bible with you, just look right in front of you, the racks in the chair, you'll see one there. Help yourself to that, and when you grab it, turn to the second book, Exodus. That's been our study, our residence for the past few months here at Westmount, and we return there this morning, Exodus 20. And this chapter, as you settle in there, of course, contains the Ten Commandments, or as we have noted in this study, the Ten Words. We've covered the first table of these commands, the first table, and by that we mean the first four. And they're distinguished, remember, because they deal with our relationship to God, our relationship to God, how we live out life before him, how we live out a sanctified life, a set-apart, fully devoted onto him. And we've noted numerous times in this study, if that fundamental relationship is not right, if the vertical is not right, then listen, no other relationship will be right. It won't be. What does God's law outline as the parameters for relationship with him? Well, first and foremost, of course, remember, a proper theology, a proper theology. I was thinking of this as David commented on a false teacher that's making the rounds and Our province and very well-known spreading wrong theology about God. But here in the first command, we have proper theology. The content of that first command, look at verse 3. Look back to it. You shall have no other gods before me. The God that we serve demands a blood ransom for sin. Not a casual expression and a token nailing to a tree. That is proper theology. God alone, the one true God, he is your one, he is your only. Following that, we looked at proper worship in the second commandment. Look at verses 4 to 6. And there, it makes clear that we bow down to no other image. No other image. Only God is our worship. Only God is the object of our worship. Flowing out of a proper theology... And here, a proper worship was next, proper words. Proper words are the heart of the third commandment. Look in verse 7, where God's law forbids the use of his name in vain. That is, as we covered, the thoughtless use of his name. Of course, as we studied, that's from employing his name without thought. That's using the name of God without giving it a thought to cursing, most obviously, to even more, to padding our words with more words, the vanity of words. Then the fourth commandment instructed us about proper days. Look at verses 8 to 11. That is prioritizing our days, setting aside a day fully devoted onto the Lord, like this day, the Lord's day. And we looked at how Lord's day is anything but a priority today. That's why we're in a mess in the church today. Lord's Day has become, especially you see this over the past 18 months, Lord's Day is optional. It's optional at best. Hence the proper order of our theology, worship, words and days is absolutely paramount to our relationship with God. That was the first table. 
Then our study last time, we were in Exodus, was the fifth commandment. And that was the start of the second table. So by way of the second table, now we're talking about our relationship with others. We looked at the vertical, now we begin with the horizontal in the fifth commandment, the second table. And there we study the first of six commands dealing, again, with our relationship with each other. And it started in the fifth commandment with the most fundamental of relationships. Look at it in verse 12, the most fundamental. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that your Lord your God is giving you. That's the command to protect the family. Remember, we talked about giving honor, and here it is proper honor to father and mother. That is giving proper weight, that's the word, weight, to father and mother, esteeming their place and authority. We know little of that today, remember? Little of that today. Here again, we observed a command that has fallen subject to gross neglect, if not the complete opposite. It's so backwards today as children, actually. Children demand that father and mother honor them. Well, today we continue with the sixth command, the sixth word found in verse 13. So let your attention fall squarely on verse 13. That'll be our residence today. Look at it with me. You shall not murder. You shall not murder. Father in heaven, Lord, we receive this text, this verse, this command from you, and we ask that you would illuminate our eyes. We ask, Lord, that you would give us, by way of your spirit, understanding of this text in a way maybe that we've never before. And God, by your grace, may we leave this place later and live in light of this command. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Our study this morning will be under two simple headings flowing out of this verse, and they are this. Number one, murder explained, and number two, murder expanded. Murder expanded. Yes, this is a straightforward command of God, but its reception is not so straightforward. For one, we've come to a point of widespread toleration of murder. Now that will sound shocking this morning, won't it? But I want you to just think with me this morning as we examine murder. We live in an age that absolutely has given accommodation, understanding, and place for murder. It's all over. We are okay with the murder of babies. We're okay with that. Goes on behind a curtain in a place, and we're just okay with that. And now we're okay with the slaughter of the sick and the aged. By way of choice, we're okay with that. We're okay with that. Murder there, murder here, and we're just okay with murder. Even more subtle and destructive today, life is threatened from authorities. It's oppressed, it's restricted, it's isolated. Life is torn down. Emotions are wrought. Mental states are broken, and we submit to that. We're okay with the violation of life. We just submit to that. Beloved, strong words to say, life is anything but protected today. Is that not true? Life is anything but protected today. It's just so ironic when the mantra is stay safe. Life is anything but safe today. 
Now listen, outside the church is one thing, but what if in it? Here this command is easily, easily beloved. This command is easily the most overlooked and the most taken for granted in the church, in the bride, with the saints. This is the command, and I think you know it. You come to the table, you come to the Ten Commandments, and you say, at least I'm not doing that. These ten are hard enough, but man, I got that murder thing. Well, I trust you're starting to see in our study in Exodus that there is absolutely no command. What did David remind us of in Romans 3? All have sinned in what? Fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are immune to anything in these tables and in these words. Instead of passing over the word of God, let it penetrate your heart. Let me remind you of Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is what? Living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Would you let the word of God do that today? I am sure that no command in this table will do that more than the sixth commandment. Let me tell you, it did to me, and it continues to do to me. I tell so many of you, it has to assault me first before it gets to you. And this is a very hard command. There is no nook or corner that escapes a command like this. There's no running from the word of God. And you know what? We're thankful for that. We need truth to hunt us down, don't we? Let's now consider this command in light of the whole counsel of God. So first, murder explained. Murder explained. Consider the word murder. Look at it in verse 13. Now there are a number of words in the Hebrew to describe the act of killing. We talk often about the Hebrew and the Greek are so dynamic. Often they have multiple words for things in English we only have one for. In fact, as you look at the word there, I want you to consider now just in the original that there are at least two other words Two other words for killing that are quite common, and both of those other words, just to name two, there's many, are used over a hundred times each. So very common words for killing. However, look at the word in verse 13. The word you're seeing there is neither of those words. And, And by the way, it's not a common word for killing in the Old Testament. The word you see in verse 13, look at it. Murder, for most translations, if you're in the King James, it says kill, is ratzah. It means to slay. And that's where the translation of murder captures it very well. The word ratzah is used less than 50 times. Less than 50 times in the Old Testament. And listen, it's only ever used of killing people. This is very important. Ratzah is only used of killing people. The word is never used to describe the killing of animals. And you say, Jason, why is that important? It's important because you'll hear people reference the sixth command as a reason why you should never kill animals for any reason at all. Many people base their lifestyle and their diets off the fact that they would go to the sixth command and say you should never kill animals. However, God is not, this is why every word is important and understanding every word is important in God's word, God is not prohibiting the killing of animals here. By the way, there's a different word for that, not the one used here. More, that wrong interpretation would be contrary to many other scripture passages, and maybe you're thinking of them right now. 
For example, Genesis 9.3. What did God say to man in the beginning? Post-flood. Every moving thing that lives shall be what? Food for you. And so we're clear that it's not plants in view. God goes on to say, as I gave you the green plants, I gave you everything. In other words, I've given you everything that moves to eat. We're going to look at this reference in a moment later too. God goes on to talk about the blood in relation to what moves and what we're to do with the blooded animals and so on. In other words, he's talking about animals. This, of course, is affirmed in the New Covenant, so we don't think this is just an old thing. It's affirmed in the New Covenant in Acts 10. Do you remember Peter's vision? Do you remember Peter is praying on the rooftop in Acts 10, and what descends from heaven? There's a sheet, and what's on that sheet? The text says animals of all kinds, reptiles and birds. And God says what? God says, rise, kill, and eat. That's everything, all kinds of animals. Beloved, in the beginning, God commanded Adam and Eve to have dominion over the earth. That would be for whatever use. In Acts 10, the early church, we see this throughout Scripture. Listen, there are many times we need to kill animals to eat, to subdue and protect. So enjoy your steak and eggs and don't fret over hunting trips and mousetraps. Now, that's one dimension of the word ratzah. I certainly don't. Now, that is one dimension of the word ratzah in verse 13. So that's key. It's limited to people. That's just one. There's so much here. Now, let's consider another reason why the word used here is so important. Ratzah is not only strictly used to describe person-to-person killing, but it is person-to-person killing, note this, person-to-person killing that is unjust. Unjust. There is a word for that. This is killing not permitted by God. It's unjust killing. And you might say, wait, there is killing that is just? There is killing that's permitted by God? Well, yes. Remember, we looked at one of those instances a few weeks ago. Do you remember the man collecting sticks on the Sabbath? Do you remember him? Numbers 15, 32 to 36 records that. In fact, Numbers 15.36 states that the Lord commanded the man's killing. Different word. That command to kill, again, is very different in context and in word to what's going on here in Exodus 20. Of course, in the law, in the Pentateuch alone, there are a number of commands to kill. As you do your daily readings, I'm sure you come across that in the Pentateuch. Do you not? All the killing that's authorized by God. Different word. Yes, God permits that kind of killing because it is killing that is just. It is killing that is deserved. And and so we see that judicial, penal killing is not prohibited by this command. That's so important. It's not prohibited by this command. Killing that is judicial. Killing that is penal. It's not prohibited by this command. And yes... Why are we saying that? It means biblically there's no prohibition against capital punishment. There's none. Turn to Genesis 9. I told you that we'd peek in there. I hope this is helpful as we live in a society and environment that would bristle at such things. God's word gives no prohibition against capital punishment. Genesis 9, we reference verses 1 to 3 already. 
Look at verse 3 in Genesis 9. Every moving thing, God says, that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I gave you everything. Let's pick up now the account in verse 4. So much here. God goes on to say, but you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is, its blood. So you can eat the flesh, but don't eat the blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I'll require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I'll require a reckoning. Look at this, for the life of man. There's a reckoning for the life of man. That's one thing. So very clear, life for life. But then look at what verse 6 tells us. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. That's pretty straightforward. But then this, the four, the crucial four, this is the why. Why blood for blood? Why the reckoning? For God made man in his own image. You're destroying the image of God. Note this before we leave Genesis 9. Look at verse 7. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. You know, we don't have time this morning to go through all the riches of God's word with the implications of the sixth command. In that verse 7 alone, this is not just protecting life. This is not just a neutral don't kill life. We see and look in verse 7 of Genesis 9. Be fruitful, multiply. Don't just protect life, promote it and flourish it. You see that? There's so much more we could say about that, and many have, and it's well said. God is not just protecting life, keeping it sterile, safe, and neutral. He's about flourishing life and promoting life. That also lies in the sixth command. Now, this is so important. As you look again at that, as you're still in Genesis 9, look at verse 6. The price for taking a life unjustly cannot be clear. You shed blood, you slay, you murder. The price is your blood and your death. And again, why don't miss this end of verse 6? Why? For God made man in his own image. Listen, man is not an animal. Man has a soul. And more, man bears God's image. I don't think we reflect on that enough. I am looking out at a room of image bearers of the one true God. Would you take one of those lives? Image bearers of the one true God, let it sink into your own soul. This is vital in understanding this commandment. By the way, this is exactly what is stated. You don't have to turn back there. You can. Genesis 1, 27. You can note it. Do you remember the creation of man and woman? This is precisely what was said there too. Let us make man in what? God's image. God's image. It's so important. Westmount, this is the very heart of why murder is the most grievous of sins. Let's not miss this. Because you're destroying the image of God destroying the very image of God. And such destruction likewise deserves death. It makes sense. Now you might say, okay, but that's the Old Testament. That's the old law. Maybe you're thinking that. We're under grace. And you hear that as many Christians, listen to me, many Christians attempt to dismiss capital punishment today. That's a very good question. I once had that question too. Turn to Acts 25. Acts 25. As you're turning there, we are going to zoom into Paul's life. He, of course, now is in custody toward the end of Acts, right, by the authorities. He 
has been standing before the authorities. He's been before Felix, and now it gives way to Festus. He's kind of been languishing in uh, the authorities' care for two years, and now he stands before Festus. And we're going to parachute into this account. He's kind of making his defense about the accusations leveled against him. And one thing I want you to note here is Paul is subjecting himself to the law, but Paul's point is, I've done nothing wrong. But I want you to hear what Paul has to say about the law. Let's pick up this account in verse 10. But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. So in other words, sure, if I'm going to be tried, try me before Caesar's tribunal. To the Jews, I've done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. And then listen to this in verse 11. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which what? I deserve to die. Hmm. I do not seek to escape what? Death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. In other words, look at it, beloved. There are crimes in the New Testament post-cross that Paul affirms are what? Deserve to be punishable by death. Do you see that? This is after the cross. What's interesting, I want you to look at 10 and 11. Paul doesn't appeal to grace here. He doesn't say, Festus, Festus. What of grace? Paul doesn't say that the God that I know, he doesn't punish people by death. That's not what Paul says, does he? He says what? He understands that there's offenses that warrant death. And he says it before Caesar's tribunal. Very, very important. In fact, to give you more, also in the New Testament, post-cross, let's go to the text that's being butchered like crazy today, Romans 13. You don't have to turn there. But in the text that so many run to and misunderstand, Romans 13 says this of a governing authority. Just listen to verse 4. He is the authority, God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, right? If you do wrong, be afraid. Why? For he does not bear the sword in vain. Listen, I get that that's hard because the government bearing the sword is nothing like the tap on the wrist that is all around us today, right? The government's not bearing the sword at all. Tap on the wrist. True criminals are out in days. You turn back to Exodus, and I want us to just cement this. This is the heart and character of God. Listen. Blood for blood. Blood for blood. Much more I could say about what we celebrated at the table and why it's glorious. But I just want you to see this last principle. We'll be here in the fall. Exodus 21 starts to unpack a bit of the law. In verse 22 of chapter 21, again, just one piece I want to show you. The principle here, this is men striving together. They hit a pregnant woman. Tragedy occurs with baby. And then look at verse 23. If there is harm, then you shall pay what? Life for life. Eye for eye. Tooth for tooth. Hand for hand. Foot for foot. Burn for burn. Wound for wound. Stripe for stripe. In other words, that's what? Justice. That's what that is. Our God is a God of justice. And aren't you thankful he is a just God? Much more I could say, of course, we're thankful for grace, again, that we remembered at the table. We remembered justice at the table this morning, and we also remembered grace. And Praise God for that. Church, listen. Here it is. Nothing has changed. Old Testament or new. Exodus or Romans, then or now. 
Murder, the slaying, the shedding of victims' blood, deserves the murderer's blood. Now, one more aspect of this word, ratzah. It is also not the biblical word used to describe killing in war or self-defense. Yes, there's a different word for that. Yes, there is such a thing in the Bible and today as just war. That means by that term that there is killing that is necessary, that is permitted. And here it is when you think of just war. Killing that is necessary to protect life. Does that make sense? Killing that's necessary to protect life. This, of course, happens today. Sadly, the officer, the civilian that has to take down the mass shooter. And we understand that has to be, right? Why? Because he is protecting life. Far from a murderer, well, we used to call such men heroes, officers that protected us. We don't call them heroes anymore, do we? But the point is, this word is not prohibiting such killing in war or defense. I need us to see this. That's not what God is prohibiting when he says, you shall not murder. That's not here. Again, there's another word used for that in the Bible, and this makes sense because there are times in the Bible where just war, where necessary killing is in view. Think of the killing and the conquest. I want you to think of Joshua 10 to 12. That's just war prescribed there. Why? If for no other reason, God commands to do it, right? I've given you this land, go and conquer it. I want you to think of the killing as God's people defended themselves. Do you remember a few chapters ago in Exodus 17? Do you remember that ambush by, remember, Amalek? Well, they had to defend themselves and lives were lost. But that was just. Both of those times, like in all times in the Bible, we speak of just war and just defense. And again, we have specific ways, or God has specific ways that he articulates that through specific words. Listen, beloved, we understand how wrong it would have been. I just want to give you one example, the most obvious. In World War II, nobody wanted a pacifist in World War II. Or we would live in a very different world, would we? No one would be clinging to the Sixth Commandment as evil was starting to spread across Europe. No, we understand that we rise up. We defend and we fight and if necessary, kill for the sake of life. So we protect life. So do not import that into this commandment. Friends, let's not run to the sixth commandment wrongly. Arguing against the killing of animals or murderers or for just wars or defenses is just simply wrong in the sixth command. It's not what God is prohibiting here. God says, you shall not murder, which is the unjust taking of another human being's life made in God's image. That's it. Now, before we leave this explanation, a few more items need comment. And listen, they need it especially today, and you'll understand why. We've talked about what is not included in the sixth command, what's not included in Ratzah. We've talked about the limits of Ratzah. However, we need to mention now what is included in Ratzah. Because that, too, is not only misunderstood, it's grossly misunderstood. I'll give you three. There's more, but I'll give you three for this morning. First is the murder at the beginning of life. You know it is abortion. 
People may regard the fetus as less than an animal, a clump of cells. It is not. It is not. From the moment of conception, there is life in the womb. Life made, remember what we've learned, Westmount, life made in the image of God. The word of God cannot be clearer. So many passages I could give you, but let me just give you a couple. Psalm 139.13 says, For you, this is a psalmist speaking to God, You, God, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together where? In my mother's womb. David says, You knitted me. He doesn't say that there's a clump of cells and you know what out popped a person. No, you knitted me together. That means there was life, authorship of life, creation of life, heartbeat of life, actual real image of God, life in the womb. What, it, what is a beautiful thing has been turned into such utter genocide. It's a beautiful thing. But you know, we can go further back than the womb. Did you know that? Jeremiah 1.5. Do you remember the call of Jeremiah? God says this to him. Listen to this. Before I formed you in the womb, God's going back now. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. You don't talk about a clump of cells having knowledge of that. We talk about knowing each other. God says before the womb, Jeremiah, I knew you. That's life before the womb. So if that is true, and it is, then conception is only further down the life track. In fact, in God's economy and sovereignty, life does not begin at conception. It begins much further upstream. Friends, killing life in the womb is murder. And if there's any choice, so many people want to talk about choice. Listen to me. If there's any choice in the womb, it's the choice to murder. That's what we're talking about. The choice to murder a baby. Abortion then is a violation of the sixth commandment and the law of God. Secondly, there's the self-murder throughout life. It's known as suicide. Killing self falls into no exception categories here. I know it's very on vogue these days to talk about that, but it's not. There's nothing here with an exception for suicide. Suicide is not self-defense or is in any way just. Suicide biblically, and it's always been this way, is self-murder. That's what suicide is. That's, that's what the term means. And murder, as we've seen, is always wrong under God's law. Beloved, listen, it's only modern sensibility. Only the past 50 years or so that suicide has been softened. And I'll tell you why. Only in our self-focused age has there been a tolerance for self-harm. Just think about that. Only in an age that's so obsessed with self do we tolerate self-harm. It's never been this way in the history of mankind. Only today. Yet throughout history, let me give you a brief jet tour, Christians have unanimously condemned suicide. Let's just walk backwards from today. You have the fiery sermons of Charles Spurgeon in the 19th century that couldn't be clearer about how wrong suicide is. What about the fiery scenes from Dante, Dante's Inferno, the regions of hell for suicide? And of course, we can go further back in church history, and let's just run to God's word. 1 Samuel 31, do you remember King Saul committing suicide? Nowhere in the text is it condoned. Similarly, in the New Testament, Judas commits suicide. And when Judas commits suicide, does he pop up in Hebrews 11? No. Do you know what they call that field? 
It's called the field of blood. Blood. King Saul, Judas, Abimelech in Judges 9, Ahithophel in 2 Samuel 17, Zimri in 1 Kings 16. These are the men in the Bible that commit suicide. And listen, such men, as I just referenced, do not appear in the hall of faith. In fact, in the hall of faith, I know we've talked about this in our home a few times. Isn't it strike you in the hall of faith, those people are sinful, right? They're sinners. But this sin is not lauded in the hall of faith, not at all. There is not one account of self-murder that is approved in Scripture. And again, I'm not saying anything new here. I trust I'm standing on the shoulders of many that have said this throughout church history. And that's because it's a sin. Suicide is a sin. It's murder. And God's law forbids it. One more. Thirdly is the murder at the end of life. You know it is this. Medically assisted, medical assistance in dying. I have to get that right. I have to get that right because it used to be called physician-assisted suicide. Do you remember when it was called PASS? Well, they had to change the name. Evidently, when you call something what it is, it ruffles feathers. Listen, whatever the label, the act of preemptively ending life is still murder. You can give it any fancy acronym you want. You're still slaughtering life. You're still destroying the image of God. Now, to be clear, I am not talking about DNR orders. Do not resuscitate orders here. We're talking about, this is what we're talking about, taking life from a beating heart from someone that is still living. Taking it away, snuffing it out. Yes, that means even with a terminal diagnosis, it is wrong to end your life. Yet, the law of the land now, as you sit here in 2021, the law of the land says you don't even need that. Did you know that? Nobody wants to know that, but it's now law. You don't even need a terminal diagnosis to end your life. Bill C-7 passed back in March. It now empowers citizens to elect to die. Why? When life is hard. I just want to quote the law itself so that you see it's not me. I'm going to quote it directly. It says this, I quote, It's no longer required that natural death be foreseeable to access medical assistance in dying. Did, did you hear that? Even when death is not foreseeable, i.e. you're going to be okay, you probably would still have many years to live, even then, go ahead church that's murder I, I there's no other word for it right it's murder it's murder why and listen biblically because god determines our days not us is that not true god determines our days listen to job 14 5 in the middle of his misery by the way in the middle of his misery he wasn't calling in a maid order he was saying this man's days are determined And the number of his months is with God. And he goes on to say this, God has appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Who determines our days? God. The word of God says the number of our days is God's business. It's his alone, his determination. Hence, God says, you shall not murder in the womb, yourself, or at the end of life. Each of those murders are a direct violation of, On the image of God. Each of those murders assumes we have the right to something that God does alone. 
Only God gives life, and as such, only God takes away life. Okay, that's murder explained, but as I alluded to earlier, you might be feeling secure here. So let's look at murder expanded. Murder explained and now murder expanded. You hear about killing babies, killing self, killing the sick, killing the aged. You turn on the news to news of homicides and people murdering other people. And I'm sure we've all had at least a moment, maybe not recently, but at some point in your Christian life, you think, well, that's not me. I'm not a murderer. I'm not a murderer. Well, listen, that might be true. It might be if murder was simply a physical act. And church, it isn't. Under the law of God, murder is not simply committing a crime. No, the one who came and fulfilled the law, the one who came and clarified the law of God for us, Jesus Christ, helps us to see the full scope that was once given here on Sinai to Moses. Our Savior comes and expands this law for us and shows us through him what God is revealing to us. Turn to Matthew 6. This is where we'll be for the rest of our time. You can keep your finger in Exodus 20. Such a crucial New Covenant passage. This, of course, is the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount. And as we just commented on what Christ came to do, you know this account, many of you are very familiar. This is where Christ says, often you've heard it said, but I say to you. He's clarifying their hearing of the law. They knew the law. They didn't understand the full implications of it. Let's pick it up in verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So in other words, this is crucial. Jesus is not coming and saying, let's blow that thing up on Sinai. I'm not coming to abolish that. I'm actually coming to fulfill it. And this has implications for what we'll end with. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. In other words, this law is operative right now. You shall not murder. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then this, look in verse 20. For, so this is why he's saying this, and this is an important passage. Look at verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And you know what someone would have said in context there? They said, well, they're perfect. The ones with the flowing robes and the ones I see in the synagogues, like the way that they're carrying on, I mean, they're perfect. Because that's what their eyes could see. Absolute, pristine, external conformity to the law. It's a plague that still plagues us today, isn't it? Just present well, just look well, and it's okay. But Jesus, with that Hebrews 4.12 word, is going to go deeper and say, you, you are missing it. Your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees. And he's going to now explain what that means. This is the law of God. What Jesus is going to say here, and you know this in the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to say the law of God has never been relegated to external conformity. Beloved, listen to me. That's the stuff of the world. You want external conformity? And can I say this? And I hope I can honor the emperor through this. That's the stuff of politics. Externally present well. Just make sure you present and and hold up well. But that may be the economy of the world, but it's not the economy of God. God says he cares about what? 
What's going on inside? Is there something rotten in there? Are there dead man's bones rotting away in there? This might be whitewashed, but what's in here? Look at verse 21. Now he turns and he gives this example of the sixth commandment. He says, you've heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. They would say, yes, we've never murdered. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. You can imagine all the head nodding. Yes, yes. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Let's just be blunt this morning and call it like Jesus does. Anger, insult, slander is murder. It's murder. According to Jesus, it's murder. Jesus is expanding the understanding of the law of God here. Now let's examine very closely. Jesus is not saying what they see written in the Old Testament is not true. Let's not do that. He's not saying what you knew about the Old Testament, Moses, it's not true. No, look what he's doing. Instead, he's correcting what they heard and then practice the Old Testament law saying here. And he's providing them with the right interpretation of God's word in light of himself. So important. According to Christ, anger is murder. According to Christ, insults are murder. That's right. Plain from the mouth of Christ. Murder is, as it turns out, very much ultimately an internal thing. And I think we know that. And so it is. Murder from the very beginning has always been a hard issue. Take your minds back with me to the beginning. Genesis 4. Jesus is not unveiling something new here. Listen, murder has always been about hatred. It was anger, in fact, behind the first murder in Genesis 4. Do you remember those two brothers? God asked Cain in verse 6, Why are you angry, Cain? You see that? The pathology of murder there? Why are you angry, Cain? Cain had already murdered his brother in his heart. The deed was done. Murder from the heart, the physical act, the killing of Abel was simply the downstream overflow. And do you see why this is so important for us? Do you see why so many people say, how can they do that thing? Because sometimes there's stuff simmering and brewing inside. You don't need volcanic eruptions to see what's going on in the heart. They help to diagnose, but often there's things lying under the surface. And here Jesus says, you can be murdering in your heart. By the way, this is confirmed in the passage that Z read for us this morning in 1 John 3. Remember in that passage, John, the apostle, brings up the example of Cain, and he says this in verse 15, and again, Z read it. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. They're affirmed, by the way, in the New Testament. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That's heavy duty. Now, I believe through Christ we recognize that we are guilty of murder. This is no gimme commandment. In fact, just the opposite. And it begs the question, have you been angry? Have you slandered someone? How about this? Have you harbored hatred in your heart for another person? Have you reveled in the unwell doing of someone else? When you heard that something didn't go well, did you just applaud secretly in your heart and maybe give external platitudes on how... This is what we're talking about. This is the stuff of the Pharisees. And beloved, we are God's children and we want to eradicate that, do we not? We want to be done with that. 
I'm with you here. I'm with you. Friend, if you have done those things, anger, slander, harbored hatred, you have murdered. You have violated the law and the word of God, and I believe that's crystal clear this morning. And by the way, before we also commit another sin and sidestep the allowance here, I just want you to think back to the actual command. It's actually two words in the original. You shall not murder. It's just two words. That's it in that verse. But what's interesting is the type of words, and we're going to see this in the rest of the table, a type of negation, right? The not and the type of verb, right? Murder. In the original, that construction that's in Exodus 20 doesn't just mean negation. Just don't do this. Don't do it today or just don't make a habit of doing it. In the original, you're going to see this construction throughout Exodus 20. It's actually permanent negation. In other words, we could say, you shall never, ever, 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 ever murder. Don't ever do it. It's not allowed on any condition ever. Zero tolerance by God for murder. It means zero tolerance, and we must press the point as New Covenant Christians, zero tolerance for anger. Zero tolerance for malice. Zero tolerance for harboring anything ill in your heart toward another person. You harbor those in your heart, beloved. And I say this to hear it with you. You're a murderer if you do that. You're a murderer. This is and has always been the full scope, the expansion of murder. Now, believe me. Believe me. I understand how you're feeling in this very moment. It's crushing, isn't it? It's crushing. I'm with you. It's very crushing to know that you murder brothers and sisters. What do you do? What, what do we do? You say, Jason, you can't possibly call the worship team after that. You can't do that. This is crushing. Well, in light of this command, if you'll bear for another few minutes, I leave you with this. So helpful for me this week, and I pray for you as well. Number one, you repent. Right now, later today, you run to repent. Find time urgently. Get alone with God. Get on your knees, whatever it takes, and you repent. You cry out to God. Confess to him. Confess to him that you have hated his image in another person. Confess to him that you've hated another image bearer. Make haste. Make no excuse. Make it right with your God. Get to it. That's one. Two, you repent first. Secondly, you receive If that repentance is from the heart, then you can be assured of mercy. Hallelujah. Hallelujah for mercy. Receive that mercy, beloved. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christian, this is why you're a Christian. This is why you have hope. Because you will not die for that murder. Christ did. Christ died for your murder. Receive his grace. Rise, dust off your mat, and walk in his righteousness. You repent, you receive, and you reconcile. Jesus continues in the same passage. I trust it's still open. Look at verse 23. He says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. What is most amazing about that passage is not the how to be reconciled. Let's not miss this. 
This is not somehow to look, that's helpful for many of us these days, right? That's helpful. The how what's most amazing about this passage is that we can be before we offer gifts to God. And then we're free to worship our God who we just violated. Tell me that's not amazing that we can be reconciled after committing murder. This is only possible because Christ endured murder himself by sinful men. He took not only the execution at the cross, but as we've talked about at length this morning, he bore the wrath of God. For us, for us murderers, that's what we deserve. But Christ bore the punishment for us so we don't suffer for what we're due. Let me ask you something. Who would give their life For a murderer, who would do that? Would you? If I presented a murderer in here right now, would you give your life for someone who's murdered another person? Romans 5, 7. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that what? While we were still, and we would say this morning, murderers, Christ died for us. What kind of God is this? And as such, for we rejoice. The only thing left to do after we repent, receive, and reconcile, we rejoice. We deserve death for our own shed blood, but we receive life because of his shed blood. Can you rejoice this morning in that? Can you rejoice? We end with this. 2 Corinthians 5, and maybe I could add another R, we remember. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is... In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses, we could say, not counting their murder against them. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And beloved, walk away with this glorious truth. Verse 21, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Father, we thank you for that truth. We could never understand the depths of your mercy and the reconciliation through Christ enough this side of glory. But God, please give us strength to walk in light of it, that we would know we're forgiven and free with a genuine heart repentance of godly sorrow that flows in to works righteousness that come from you. Oh God, we pray that you would enable us to grab this text, to sink it deep into our souls, and to walk out living and giving you glory. We beg this now in Christ's precious name. Amen.